0: From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen.
1: Your life is a text, as it were. And so what do you learn about Jesus from that. And so when we talk about the theology of Jesus, we're talking about Christology. And so basically what this book is, if you want to use the fancy words, it's a uh, experiential Christology.
0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash not That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash radio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Diana Butler Bass. She's the author of 10 books on American religion, including Grateful, Grounded, and Christianity for the Rest of Us. She holds a doctorate in religious studies from Duke University. Her bylines include the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN.com, USA Today, Huffington Post, Spirituality and Health, The Christian Century, and Sojourners. She's a popular speaker and preacher at conferences, colleges, and universities, and churches across North America and internationally. And today we're talking about her recent book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Diana Butler Bass, welcome back to Things Not Seen.
1: It's wonderful
0: to be with you again, David. So, I want to start our conversation in a little bit of an odd place. I want to take you back to a street corner in Santa Barbara, your sophomore year of college. You're standing on the corner with some women, and then at a certain moment, The police drive up and start arresting the women, and you're worried that you're going to be arrested too. At one point, though, one of the women turns around and says, oh, don't take her. She's not one of us. She's one of those Jesus people. I would love for you to help my listeners understand what you were doing on that street corner and what that moment was all about.
1: Oh, my. (laughs) I I think you went for the heart story of the book. The context of that is during my sophomore year in college, and I went to an evangelical Christian college, there was basically a revival. And at that time, people were taking very seriously the words of Jesus to come and die. If a person wants to pick up their cross and follow me, that person has to give everything up and then come. And this idea of dying to Christ, and it was a huge idea around my friends when we were 19 years old. We were very idealistic. It was 1979, I think. So it was quite a long time ago, but the Jesus movement was at its height. And a group of us in response to this call, this revival, decided that we were going to start a street ministry in Santa Barbara, because we really wanted to show that we were willing to go to the ends of the earth in order to follow Jesus. And so in Santa Barbara, California, the ends of the earth are the poor people and the homeless folks who live in the streets of Santa Barbara. And what I was doing on that particular street corner on that particular night was I was literally witnessing to a group of what I could only call when I was 19 years old, ladies of the evening, these women that we'd now call sex workers. And I was very much trying to help them out of this, you know, terrible lifestyle that they had been victimized by evil men and that they could be free of their sin, all of these things when the police pulled up. And lo and behold, the police just started putting all of the women who were standing on the street corner in the paddy wagon, including trying to put me in the paddy wagon with uh, the women that I was talking to, at which point one of the women looked at the police and said, oh, don't take her. She's not one of us. And the actual quote is, she's a Jesus girl. And I can remember at that moment. Both feeling this incredible sense of relief that I wasn't going to have to explain to my parents why I had been put in jail with a group of prostitutes. But on the other hand, feeling really sad because I had this theological sneaking suspicion that if Jesus had been in the same position, Jesus would have just gotten in the paddy wagon and gone off to the jail. And so this was a moment of real conflict in my spiritual life when I was a, a college student. And one of the titles we threw around for this book was actually Jesus Girl.
0: This is one of the reasons why I wanted to start with this story, because it is so much a microcosm of I think everything that's going on in your book, Freeing Jesus, but it really made, for me as a reader, it made the contrast so stark. So in one sense, the Jesus girl is the good girl who would never be caught... Dead hanging out with prostitutes. On the other hand, there's this other narrative of who Jesus is. And as you just said, Jesus would be the one saying, No, I'm in solidarity with you, I'm one with you. And if they're going to take you, they're going to take me, the kind of Matthew 25 Jesus. And that conflict doesn't just rest with you that night on that corner in Santa Barbara, but it sounds from the book like that conflict stayed with you. Now, do I have that reading right? Or, or am I would you say it in a different way?
1: I think that it it is one of the central conflicts of the book and also of my own life. The title of the book Being Freeing Jesus, one of the things that I'm trying to free Jesus from is the cultural packages that I kept running into Jesus in different cultural packages. as I was going through my life, the earlier stages were nice middle class Methodism of the mid 20th century when I was a little girl. And when we get into the 1970s and the 1980s, there's quite a lot of the story material around me being part of the evangelical subculture at that time. And so that's a, another cultural package. It's a cultural package of um, American evangelicalism and what that looked like at a really important time in American history when evangelicalism left the shadows that it had been hiding in for much of the 20th century and burst back into the American scene as a political and social movement. And yet that Jesus was wrapped in certain kinds of presumptions about what was polite, what was right. And so there's a lot in this book about me embracing the Jesus that I've been taught through either my Methodist church growing up or evangelicalism or later on, there's different cultural packages that I'm struggling with. But there's also this constant undertow to free Jesus from that, to find a Jesus that's more biblically authentic and more resonant with a kind of wholeness i think i was always searching for so there is a more than a little conflict between the the nice methodist girl and then the nice evangelical girl and this wild kind of unpredictable call
0: to follow this very radical Jesus wherever that radical Jesus takes us. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Diana Butler-Bass. She's been on the show several times before. Today, we're talking about her recent book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Well, a moment ago you started to talk about this, but I want to stay with this for just a moment because you mentioned that there were some alternate titles that you had kicked around for this book, Freeing Jesus. As I was reading it, one of the titles that sort of arose to me was almost A Tale of Two Parishes or A Tale of Two Congregations because you talk about your early life in a Methodist church and then. As you grow older, your family moves out west to Scottsdale, Arizona, where you then are in a Bible church. And I wonder for my listeners if you can talk a little bit about the contrast between those two experiences in your young life.
1: Four of the chapters of the book take place mostly before I'm, I would say, 30 years old. The first two chapters, when I talk about Jesus as friend and teacher, are primarily located in a Methodist church in Baltimore City. And it was, it's no longer this, but it was a German ethnic enclave neighborhood. And my family in that neighborhood was pretty prominent. My grandfather owned a florist shop. His father had laid the cornerstone on the elementary school, which became the elementary school that my father attended and that I attended. And my great grandparents also were among the first parishioners in the Methodist church where I was baptized. And so the world of that church, I was born in 1959. I talk about it primarily in the sixties and very early 1970s. It's really the last of the world of old style, I think 20th century mainline Protestant religion. I was there. I was a little girl. It only lasted until about the time I was 12. But nevertheless, the values and virtues and the visions presented of Jesus in that congregation have stuck with me a lifetime because, of course, they were the first things I ever knew about Jesus. And so that whole mainline experience has been An incredibly formative part of my life, and one that I've never entirely gotten away from and always had to return to at important moments and junctures in my own spiritual story in order to understand, I think, who I am and why certain kinds of theological emphases I keep, I I either return to or I find attractive. So that was my first experience as a Christian, was in that congregation. And it was all in all, a very kind place. It was very f- family oriented. It was extremely white. And it was a world in which everyone knew one another. It, w- it was an incredibly cohesive world in many ways. And then my my folks moved to Arizona in 1972. And there were a whole lot of reasons why. One was a white flight in Baltimore City after the riots of 1968 and the, The whole city was just really in crisis around 1970. And so my parents were uncomfortable with that. And so many other white people decided that they would somehow move, get away from it all. So Arizona is a place that they decided to go to. They were also having some, I think, a lot of personal stresses in their own marriage. And it made some sense to get far away and start again. So they moved to Arizona. And out in Arizona especially in the early 1970s, you know, that, that's the West. It's, it, people who live in the West will understand this. What we called mainline religion in the East Coast was just one more church out West. Those mainline churches don't have the same kind of deep roots as a Methodist church has in Baltimore City, where Methodism goes back to the late 1770s. And so in Arizona, we went to a Methodist church. It was very dull. But there were all kinds of other religious options. And eventually I wound up going to a place called Scottsdale Bible Church, which I would call a soft fundamentalist church. It wasn't the kind of evangelicalism that you might find around Wheaton College or a very intellectual form of evangelicalism. There were three pastors, I believe, at the time, and they were all from Dallas Theological Seminary, which some of your listeners will be familiar with a uh, world that that represents. And they cared about the Bible deeply. There were 50-minute sermons, not 15-minute sermons, that I was used to in my, my Methodist childhood. And there were lots of Bible studies and People were passionate about missions. And the reason I refer to them as soft fundamentalist is because I I think back in the 1970s, there was a tone, even in fundamentalist churches, they had been isolated so long from mainstream culture that when they reemerged as a cultural force, I think there was a little bit of initial fear of being too militant, that they wanted to fit in. And so there was a you know kind of interesting playfulness where they wanted to engage contemporary culture that's the beginnings of Christian rock and roll we're back in those years young life which was always less of a turner burn evangelistic organization and far more of a hey let's get all our friends and go to church sort of group it was a softened world of nevertheless pretty stringent biblical interpretations. So those become my two back-to-back experiences theologically of growing up. The Methodism of my childhood that was clearly one of the major forms of Protestant faith in Maryland in the the 20th century. And then this kind of re-emerging fundamentalism out in the desert in the American Southwest. And that experience of those back-to-back of mainline and evangelicalism, years later, after I went to graduate school, I was talking with Martin Marty. And he said to me, Diana, you are both and. You are both mainline and evangelical. And then he said that he would be very sad if I didn't bring the wisdom and experience of both of those traditions into my work.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Diana Butler Bass. And today we're talking about her recent book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years of these sorts of interviews, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today, we're speaking with Diana Butler-Bass. She's been on the show several times before. We're glad to have her back. We're talking about her recent book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Well, before the break, you were talking about a conversation that you had with Martin Marty, and you mentioned that Marty encouraged you in this book to bring in two styles of wisdom, one from the mainline tradition and one from the more evangelical tradition. And I'm wondering if you can unpack for us what you think Marty meant by that. What are these two wisdoms, and are they complementary or competing?
1: I guess I didn't make myself entirely clear. Marty made that comment to me probably in 1996 or 97. So I was out of graduate school. I was in my first job and I was talking to him at a conference and he literally just encouraged me to make sure that I always held together these two experiences of the mainline liberal tradition and then also the evangelical tradition. So I've taken that advice and over the years tried to figure out what it really meant. And I think that in some of my books I was very hard on evangelicalism because ultimately it does wind up being I think a sort of a less authentic reading of who I am and other times I have been not so hard on them and and of course most of my work the the bulk of my work people know me as being a kind of a statesperson for the liberal mainline so here in this project so many years after Marty made this remark to me And I turned 60 18 months ago. I really wanted to go back and be as honest as I could with both parts of the story. And so I think one of the things that will surprise people who have read other books of mine is that the two chapters, which are about evangelicalism, chapters three and four primarily, are very, I think, they come off in a tone that's very naive in a way that you are when you're in your late teens and early 20s, rather like the story of standing on the street corner witnessing to the prostitutes in Santa Barbara. You know, I mean, that's an incredibly naive story. What a crazy thing for a 19-year-old girl to do. Yet that was the way I was. I I came into evangelicalism and I was all idealistic and I wanted to be the very best evangelical I could possibly be. And I wanted to lead people to Jesus and I just had so much enthusiasm. And I really believed that my embrace of this whole theological vision and its evangelistic passion was going to save the world. And so I write out of that in those two chapters. And so they come off with a kind of A fresh sense of excitement and wonder, and they're very warm. So I'm a little worried that some people who have expected me to always be the critic of evangelicalism will be surprised. But I think it has something to do with turning 60 and wanting to not reject parts of my own life experience, but instead to be able to reintegrate all these different pieces in my life into a kind of wisdom that I hope to be able to bear as I move through my 60s and 70s and hopefully into my 80s. So the project was very personal in that way, wanting to go back and integrate these different threads of my life. And yet, I think that's also, this is where I think I'll probably have a few arguments um, with people as I start presenting this book. I think that there is some really important need right now for Protestants to look at their own history in America. And as we're dealing with things like race, which are terrible aspects of the tradition that need to be dealt with, there's also this terrible divide where Protestants have demonized one another and... I'm really wondering if it isn't time for an entirely new and different conversation about liberal versus conservative Protestantism for us to have an integrative approach to one another. There's a lot of healing that needs to be done within American Protestantism. And so I think that I'm using my experience, perhaps, as a potential model for that larger cultural healing that needs to take place.
0: Well, let me dig a little deeper into that provocation that you've just laid into the conversation here, because there's one point in your book, Freeing Jesus, where you're talking about your experience at seminary, and you're talking about how you are experiencing two different factions—that's my word, not yours—who are vying for control at the school. And one faction is— more open to things like liberation theology and more open to the kind of social justice side. And there's another more conservative side and I'm, I'm trying to remember exactly how you said it, but there's one aspect of it that really stuck out to me. It, it's almost like this was the side that was more open to kind of strict biblical criticism but also was almost apologetic for southern slavery. And I'm saying that not in a way that you said it, but I'd I'd love for you to say it better and then talk to us a little bit about that tension because that seems to be speaking if I'm hearing you correctly to some of that need to return to these questions and think of them anew that you just mentioned?
1: There are several times in the chapters that discuss my experience within evangelicalism where I bring up some aspect of this incredible tension that did develop within evangelicalism itself, particularly in the 1980s. And the tension was between evangelicalism that was social justice oriented, non-hierarchical, very inclusive of women. In the chapter before the one you're citing, I talk about this ministry where we went out into the streets and literally there was no one in authority, you know, over us. We just did this because we felt that Jesus was literally calling us to do it. And so here were these young adults, 18, 19, 20 years old. And what did we do? We just emulated what we believed Jesus would do, go and be among the poor, go among, be among the outcasts, go help people who are in need. And so there was this kind of, out of the Jesus movement, this sort of radical, immediate, and very intimate form of evangelicalism that emerged. And some of that impulse people will still recognize today, I think, because it institutionally got transmitted through Sojourners magazine and some of the other sorts of institutions from the 70s that were founded, but they didn't wind up existing over a long period of time. The Other Side magazine, there was a magazine called Eternity. There were a whole bunch of very utopian Christian communities that were established in the late 70s and early 1980s that were really about this sort of impulse. Most of those organizations did not succeed in the same way Sojourners did, but the people who were involved in them, a lot of those folks wound up being fairly influential in some parts of evangelicalism. So Tony Campolo, Ron Sider, there were women who were thought leaders of evangelical feminism, Letha Scanzoni and Nancy Hardesty, mostly who wound up being academics. And then there were some people who were a little bit more my age, like Dave Batstone. And he lived in a the Christian community in Berkeley for some time. And he became a liberation theologian and then founded the Not for Sale campaign. And so there there is this very, let's go out and do it for Jesus, sort of 70s evangelicalism that was incredibly inclusive and very fresh and very energetic. And then there was another kind of evangelicalism out of that same period. And it was a Kind of evangelicalism that emphasized order and authority. And their set of ideas about what was wrong with the world and how the world needed to be evangelized, the whole problem with American society is that it had become disordered. And so while my friends saw that there were problems in American society too, we thought that if people were introduced to uh, a loving, passionate God who called us all to treat one another as brothers and sisters, then the world would be healed. Whereas, what I ran into, particularly in seminary, there was this other vision that said, no, that's not how we're going to heal America. What will heal America is if we all return to a divinely established order. And as we resubmit to these particular forms of biblical hierarchy, God will look upon us once again with favor. We will have established America as the godly land that it was always intended to be, and everything will be back on its right path. And so when I was at seminary, these two worlds collided in spectacular fashion. There were professors who were very much in the sort of the Jesus movement, free-flowing, radical, inclusive form of evangelicalism. And there were professors who were in this other kind of evangelicalism. And you mentioned in particular the the neo-Confederate impulse. Yeah. I, in seminary, I heard people make arguments, biblical arguments, about the fact that slavery was part of God's design for the world. That was pretty shocking. <laughs> but nevertheless, there it was. And they weren't necessarily committed to race-based slavery, but they certainly saw that slavery was in the Bible and that I had professors literally say to me that the pro-slavery side during the 19th century made a better argument biblically.
0: Well, and this is something that you pick up in your chapter, dealing with Jesus as Lord. And you talk about a moment where you are sitting... With others studying, and some of these folks that are leading the Bible study are really leaning into the notion that we're all slaves. And you're speaking up and saying, that's really problematic language, and those that are African American are going to hear that in a way that is problematic. Those who are women are going to hear that in a way that's problematic. And it's almost... My impression of that moment in the book was it was almost like the people leading the Bible study didn't have ears to hear you. Now, that's my way of phrasing it, but it just seemed like it was falling on deaf ears for them. And this, I think, is speaking to some of what you're saying as well that it's not simply a matter of those who would explicitly praise the Confederacy, but I'm also hearing that this gets wrapped up in that entire way of reading the Bible that you were in some ways steeped in.
1: Yes. Uh, and that Bible study. I emotionally still remember that Bible study because when I protested, there were several things that were wrapped up in that conversation, including some conversation about abortion and choice. And as I kept going more deeply and saying why I was uncomfortable with what the Bible study leader was saying, there was a woman who was about my age sitting, and this was taking place when I was in, oh, probably about 33 or 34 at this point. So there was another couple in the Bible study and this, the wife was sitting across from me and they were a biracial couple. And the husband was black and she is white. And the more I said where I was Coming at the Bible study leader who was arguing for all these very top-down, hierarchical, authoritarian interpretations of Scripture, she was just like looking at me with this look of fear on her face, and her eyes were getting wider and wider. Shut up. Don't you know what you're saying? I agree with you, but you're on really dangerous ground here. And after that Bible study, the person who led it really never spoke to me again and in some ways it marked an exit for me from a particular part of the evangelical subculture. So I, I don't include all of its gorier details within this book, but that you saw that it was indeed an important moment and that I was trying to express my voice. I was trying to reclaim what I deeply believed was true, and yet this it was a, a man who led the study he really pulled out all of his authority to shut me up. And
0: it felt violent. You mentioned a moment ago that you're still carrying some of this emotion with you. I can hear that in your voice. And so on behalf of my listeners, I want to thank you for trusting us with that, which is still clearly a very raw moment for you. And it it seems to me, like one of the things that you took from that moment, and you don't say this explicitly in the book, but it's very much in the tone of the book, is that you never wanted to be like that as a teacher of the Bible coming out of that experience. Now, that's my characterization, not yours. Am I hearing that correctly, or would you say it in a different way?
1: There is part of the book that I think about, when I think about what I did in the structure of the book, the first two chapters are this sort of lovely voice of childhood and childhood faith. The next two chapters are late teens, early mid-20s, and the idealism of those years. And then I get into that, the fifth chapter, which is more about seminary and graduate school. And by then I'm in my late 20s and, and early 30s. And the tone becomes a bit more harrowing. And one of the things that I felt I had to do as an author and as a human being in that fifth chapter was to apologize to friends and people I knew at that particular moment in my life around the time I was 30. Because what had happened was Despite the fact I've been talking to you in a very passionate sense about this sort of non hierarchical, egalitarian, social justice evangelicalism that I found attractive when I was in my early 20s, by the time I got up to being 27, 28 years old, I had given in to the other kind of evangelicalism, the authoritarian kind of evangelicalism with the pro Confederate slaveholding argument, Bible professors. And those four or so years of my life in which I aligned myself with that part of evangelicalism are the part that I look back on my own life with the most shame. I said things I should have never said. I believed things I wish I would have never believed. And I talk about that in this book and how... Even when we're on the way with Jesus and we're the most well meaning, best intentioned person we can possibly be, even with tons of great theological resources like I had from my earliest childhood, we can sometimes find ourselves on the wrong path. And when we find ourselves on the wrong path, the best choice is to stop walking, look around and, and and figure out how you're going to get back on a better path. And so chapter five is about that. And so the tone of that chapter where some of these things that you're talking about take place is very stark, but yet it's a really honest tone. Oh, the whole book, in the whole piece of memoir that I'm working on here, I always go back as an author. And before I put a word on the page, I literally asked myself, what did I feel like when I was 30? What did I feel like when I was 15? What did I feel like when I was seven? And then I tried to capture some aspect of those feelings in the prose that I was putting around the story I I told. And so The shift in the prose, I think, in chapter five uh, is dramatic. And yet, but at the end of that chapter, not to give away too much, I I do find myself back on a much more life-giving path. I don't know what to say about it beyond that, other than, you know, if you find yourself on the wrong road, go a different way.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass about her recent book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeAdisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeAdisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course. Today and ask away at beadisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture. And faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews, all available for your listening pleasure for free. Today we're speaking with Diana Butler Bass. She's been on the show several times before. We're delighted to have her back. We're discussing her recent book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Well, when I first started reading this book, I got the sense that I was reading a memoir, that I was reading your life story, but it very quickly seemed to take a different direction for me because you're not simply recounting moment to moment, but you've put it into this really interesting chapter structure where you're meditating on Jesus as friend teacher, Savior, Lord, way, and presence. And so I want to ask you an open-ended question about the dynamic that you were experiencing as a writer between this recounting of memory and putting things in a more or less chronological order and this thematic order of reflecting on Jesus under these different titles.
1: I call the genre not theological memoir because I love theological memoirs, and I think there are beautiful and amazing ones where you take your own life and you reflect on the whole of your life theologically. And so the emphasis is on memoir and the secondary sense of it is on what you've learned along the way about God. But I reversed it. I actually talk a little bit about this in the very last chapter where I understand this to be memoir theology. And so in that sense, I'm using my life as text in the same way one might use the Bible as text or use church history as text or any kind of text to make theology. And so the emphasis becomes on theology rather than on me. And the hope I have for this book is that people will value and cherish their own experiences and understand that, you know, hey, Jesus lived 2000 years ago. So, you know, how do we really know anything about this guy, honestly? And yet here, many, so many Christians talk about, oh, yes, Jesus, as if you had coffee with him yesterday. So I'm urging people, take that seriously. You know, how do we really know Jesus? We know Jesus through these experiences through our lives. Whether that experience started in the Sunday school nursery before you can even remember, like in my case, or whether that life of experience started when you were 20 or 32 or whenever. Your life is a text, as it were. And so what do you learn about Jesus from that? And so when we talk about the theology of Jesus, we're talking about Christology. And so basically what this book is, if you want to use the fancy words, it's experiential Christology. What do we know about Jesus? And while I'm taking stories from my life with Jesus, I'm always shooting towards helping readers understand some larger vision of who Jesus is. And I loved these categories that emerged from me. I particularly loved reclaiming Jesus's teacher, which is a category that I don't think we pay enough attention to its theological richness and really what it actually means in terms of Christian uh, Jewish relations in particular.
0: Well, and you mentioned at one point in the book that, in fact, there are certain Christian interpretations that actively denigrate the idea of Jesus as teacher. And I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, when I got to the point where I was in Arizona and I met these evangelicals and was part of this soft fundamentalist church, they were horrified that I thought of Jesus as teacher because they had just read, then the book had just come out, Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. And in that book, Josh McDowell had taken a quote from C.S. Lewis, where Lewis says, you can't really hold to Jesus as a great moral teacher, according to the Bible jesus is only one of three things so he's a lord liar or lunatic and so here i was sitting in the bible study at the bible church after growing up in a methodist congregation where all they ever talked about was jesus as teacher and my new friends are telling me oh you can't think that you know, that's liberal, that's heresy, that's wrong. And so I think at that point in my life, when my new friends were telling me, you can't believe that anymore, I buried that idea of Jesus as teacher. So this project gave me a chance to go back to remember what was beautiful and instructive about knowing Jesus as teacher, especially during my childhood, my elementary school years, to reclaim those memories in a way I think that it gave me a sense of permission to love that part of my childhood faith formation again, and to take that idea and say, what does that mean about now? What does it mean about following Jesus as a teacher now? And lo and behold, David, I don't know if you knew this or not. I learned it for the first time when I was writing this chapter, is that the idea of calling someone a rabbi in Judaism, which means, of course, teacher, uh, was only developing in the first century. The rabbinic tradition, of course, grows into the kind of Judaism that we know today in the 20th and 21st centuries. But then at the time of Jesus, it was brand new. And Jesus is, uh, according to several sources, the earliest historically attested person that we know of who was called a rabbi. So the New Testament actually provides the very first ever written evidence of rabbinic tradition
0: for Jews. I did not know that piece of information about Jesus being the first person referred to as a rabbi, but one of the things that's arising for me out of this conversation is When you're talking about experience being the source of your Christology here, one of the things I think sometimes that my listeners may get Tangled up in is the notion that somehow theology or Christology is something that the experts do. And what I really like about what you've been saying in this conversation and what you do in your book, Freeing Jesus, is that you're really laying out all of the raw aspects of your journey. And what you're doing is you're not necessarily saying that you're any kind of expert in this. You're saying, I'm a person who has lived and has been going down these paths and occasionally has gone down the paths the wrong way. And I think readers can really identify with that. You're inviting readers to look at their own experience and imagine what kind of Jesus speaks to those experiences. Now, this is all my characterization, not yours. But as I'm saying this to you, am I getting it? Am I following what you're trying to do here in your book, Freeing Jesus? Yes, very much so. I think that good memoir
1: of any sort always invites other people to tell their stories. And so I tell my story as a way of opening up space for other people to claim their stories. And then there's one more step in it for me. And that is, I believe, as we all claim our stories from the Christian perspective, theology becomes rewritten Protestants have this great theological idea. I always talk about it as one of the top 10 theological ideas that's never really been tried, and that is the idea of the priesthood of all believers, is that every single person is a priest to every other person. So that's this radically democratized vision of Christianity. In my tradition, if we as Protestants hold on to that, then why hasn't theology been the same thing? If we say we believe, at least in lip service, in a radically democratized authority structure, the priesthood, shouldn't we take that into the life of making theology as well? Isn't every person a theologian? And my answer to that question is yes. So I am really throughout this book, and I think in my larger life project, as it were, encouraging the people of God to claim that vocation as the holders of a priesthood and the makers of a theology. So I'm pressing towards that. And in that doing and knowing and making, we then also come to know, I think, our own history better. Because that's the other sort of part of this story, is that it's not just a story about me, but it's also a story about certain aspects of American Christianity in the last part of the 20th century and the first part of the 21st century. And so it is a tale that not only gets us to a place where we are the makers of Christologies, because I don't think there's one. I think that all of our voices together create a kind of a mosaic of Christology that begins to show Jesus in more fullness, but that it also takes us more deeply into understanding the importance of the time in which we live, and how our history and these stories and theology all get wrapped into a piece, or woven perhaps into the same cloth.
0: If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Diana Butler Bass about her recent book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. I've been in the lucky position of having you as a guest on the show multiple times. And as you've come back, we've talked about several of your previous books. We've talked about Grounded and we've talked about Grateful. And so now I'd like to invite you to take a, a little bit of a more expanded view. What are the ways in which your experience of writing those two books, Grounded, which sort of took us back to reexamine some of the theological roots and figure out how to be more honestly Christian, and then Grateful, which was this outpouring of gratitude and just looking at the world in a way that is connected to the fact that we are graced. I'm wondering if you see a through line between those two books and your ability to then revisit some of these parts of your own past and history now with a kind of groundedness and gratefulness?
1: There is actually a method to my madness in, in these three books, and it goes back to a book that I wrote in 2012 called Christianity After Religion. In Christianity After Religion, I was writing about the coming demographic tsunami in American Christianity that was going to change everything. It was going to change church. It was going to change our politics. It was going to change the way that we understood our history. It was going to change the way we understood race. And in that narrative, I suggested that the way that church would have to be reordered as this demographic tsunami hit, is that we would have to take belonging very seriously. This idea of being part of community, to whom do we belong? This question was going to have to come front and center. And from that question of belonging would emerge a question of how do we then practice our faith? And then finally, we would get to a question of belief. And the reason that's not all that radical is that religious studies scholars say that believing, belonging, and behaving is the actual sort of texture or the way that religion is structured through time. But what I was suggesting that was a little different and fun was that through most of American history, we'd put belief first, And then we'd put behavior, practice, ethical choices second. And then we'd put belonging. What tribe are you? How do you become a member of this group, et cetera? That was third. So what I was saying is that the coming demographic tsunami was going to turn everything upside down, inside out and backwards. And what was going to happen is that belonging was going to have to come first first behaving would stay in the second position, but it would emerge from our sense of who we were and who we belong to, and then belief would follow. And so when I got done writing Christianity After Religion, I realized that I had to write three more books. I hope I will write more, but I knew that there were three books that were begging to be written as a follow-up to the book in 2012. And so the first one became Grounded, and Grounded is really a book that asks the question, where is God? And it's a question about belonging. To whom do we belong? And in that book, I answer the question very simply. I say we belong to nature and we belong to our neighbors. And it is in that sense of belonging in nature and neighbor that we discover how we belong to God. And so that was the first book following after Christianity after religion. And then the second book I knew had to be about behavior, about practice. And I struggled with what to write about, but landed on a practice that I think is a beautiful and shared and, if I can even use the language of foundational human spiritual practice, is that when we understand the giftedness of the universe, the grace that surrounds us, that gratitude becomes both our response and a calling towards a greater practice of justice. Very simple. And that was what I wrote about when it came to behavior. And so that meant that the last and final book out of the 2012 project was gonna be about belief. And originally I had conceived of a far more wide ranging book about experiential doctrine. I was going to call it an unsystematic theology. And I started writing that book, and that's the book that that Harper One, my publisher, approved of. And so there I was tooling away, figuring out what I was going to write. And I thought, where do I start? And I realized I wanted to just start with Jesus because I thought that was going to be the easiest chapter to write. And I sat down and I wrote about Jesus and I wrote and I wrote. I got up to 65, 70, uh, 80 pages, something like that. And that was just one chapter. <laughs> and I realized, oops, I'm not writing about all of doctrine, I'm literally writing about Jesus. So I called Harper and I told them, I think I need to write a book about Jesus. It took a little back and forth to convince them. But since I did, one of the things that I became convinced of is that Jesus really is the central question of what it means to be Christian and is a question that we can't really escape. Whether you're a liberal Methodist or you're the most conservative of evangelicals, you have to face the reality of this story of Jesus. And so to tackle that central figure and try to understand who I believe Jesus to be and how the beliefs about Jesus present themselves to us, I think is a really important thing for Christians to engage now. And so that's the through line. It literally is. I wrote a book in 2012. I realized I needed to say more about three things that I presented in that book. And then each one of those things became a beautiful sort of freestanding book on its own. And the most, I think, remarkable part of it all is that I couldn't have sat down and planned those four books in advance. I couldn't have sat there in 2010 and say, these are the four books I want to write. These books literally wrote themselves out of the journey that I've been going through in the last decade. And I think each one of them reaches more deeply into my own soul as an artist and a writer. I hope that my readers, I've, I've, I committed myself through these books to really take the craft of writing as spiritual craft, to press into it as deeply as I could and learn as much as I could about the beauty of words. And so I I hope people see that in these books because I really, I've learned so much about word as a spiritual presence really in my own life. And I feel like I've learned faith better. If I can say it, I feel like I'm a much more mature Christian than I was when I started this project. It's taken me places I didn't know I could go. And I think that some of these points that we talked about today, including my hunger for integration in my own soul, but also I am in no mood to demonize anyone anymore. I just, I feel like we've got far too much of that. And I am challenging myself every single day to ask, what does it mean to truly love my neighbor? And how does that work itself out in everything from what I post on Twitter, to how I treat my own family, to how I forgive myself for things I've done wrong in my own past, and then how I lead others toward a brighter and more hopeful faith.
0: Well, Diana Butler-Bass I read a lot of books because I talk to people on the radio about their books, but every once in a while, a book comes along, and it's exactly what I need at that moment. And this book that you wrote here, Freeing Jesus, was really that book for me. Everything that I've been meditating on over the past few months, it all was spoken to by this book, and I came out of reading it with a really hopeful, refreshed way of thinking about my own spiritual life, my own walk with Jesus. These sorts of pieces, which I'm sure you hope for all readers, they really happened for me. And I hope that my listeners will pick the book up because it really is that good of a book. But I want to say, first of all, thank you for taking the journey that you just described to us through these four books to land us here. But thank you especially for taking the time today to talk to me and my listeners about it.
1: I treasure your wisdom and uh, I'm very grateful to, to be with you and thanks for letting me share some of the story under the story.
0: We've been speaking today with Diana Butler-Bass. She's been on our show several times before. She's the author of 10 books on American religion, including Grateful, Grounded, and Christianity for the Rest of Us. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, Freeing Jesus, Rediscovering Jesus as Friend, Teacher, Savior, Lord, Way, and Presence. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC.